You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader. I'm hosting this week, and with me is Lynn Bonner, Craig Jarvis, Brian Anderson, Will Doran, and Colin Campbell, who just got back from Philadelphia where he uh, followed the goings-on all week at the Democratic National Convention and uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, acceptance of uh, the presidential nomination. Uh, So Colin will have a lot to tell us about his week with the Democrats and maybe even a comparison of how uh, that stacked up against the uh, week before that he spent in Cleveland with the Republicans. Uh, but first, the the big news here at the end of the week is uh, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals striking down North Carolina's uh, controversial voter ID law. Uh, Will, uh, what 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 did the ruling today say? Yeah, talk about a Friday news dump. This was uh, pretty big news for us here. Um, the, it was a very strongly worded ruling. It said that uh, our voter ID laws. You know, specifically, I think the phrase was surgically targeted African American voters um, specifically, and you know said that basically this was not an attempt to uh, combat fraud. I believe one of the phrases they used was uh, it was aimed at curing a problem that did not exist, and they said it was. I mean, it was a very strong word. Uh, discriminatory intent. Discriminatory intent. Yeah. Yes, it was. Uh, not at all subtle what the court or, or thought veiled, about right? <laughs> yeah, about this ruling um, and um, uh, you know the uh, I actually just recently got off a press conference with the state NAACP uh, they were obviously quite pleased about this they had been one of the plaintiffs in the case um, and you know they, they were very elated saying you know a few years ago North Carolina had basically a national model for uh, opening up voter rolls and improving access to uh, voting and that uh, that it had basically become the opposite and they were glad that this ruling had overturned it. Um, now, obviously, this isn't necessarily the end of the story. Oftentimes, the the Court of Appeals is where cases uh, stop, but they have, uh, or the state now has two options. They can appeal it either to the, the full panel of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, because this was only heard by uh, three judges, so they can have all the judges uh, get together and rule on it again, or they can ask the Supreme Court to take a look. I think they've decided to go straight to the Supreme have Court. They? Did they not? Yeah, I, th- I think they did. Maybe. I was on the press conference, so I might have missed yeah, okay. that if that happened. Um, um, that's good. And and just for people who don't know what this uh, what the law does, it basically it requires that you bring a, a photo ID to the polls, right? It, uh, uh, it says that we're not going to have uh, out-of-precinct voting uh, within the same where people who go to the wrong precinct within yeah. the same county can vote. It also shortens. shortened early voting, right? Yeah, so what else, What else, Lynn, does it And uh, uh, same-day registration. Uh, during uh, early voting, same-day registration was allowed. The law prohibited that, but now that, that's back on until, until further notice. So uh, a lot of the things that um, people were used to before uh, 2013 um, – and that were more restrictive during the primary period are now likely, at least until we hear anything more from the court, uh, are likely back on again. Um, Of course, the response from Republicans was that, um, you know, partisan judges uh, overturned um, 
North Carolina's common sense law. So uh, they also had some strongly worded responses to to the ruling. But um, for now, people who want, um, you know, expanded uh, voter ID uh, or or want uh, voter ID gone uh, are have have won this round. This was one of a few recent court rulings on uh, voter ID. I think Wisconsin and Texas, Texas. Had, had rulings that were also uh, unfavorable to restrictions on, on voting. This one was, was pretty strong, though, and it came even though the legislators came back last year and made some changes to the law, right? Exactly. Um, they added some provisions um, that said, well, if you don't have a photo ID, then you can... Um, have these exceptions, and you can also fill out a form saying that there was you had a reasonable impediment to getting a, an ID that's allowed. Um, but uh, that didn't obviously didn't uh, sway the circuit court. Does this mean uh, Democrats now uh, get have a have a better shot in uh, in in races this fall? Is this a big uh, help for uh, for Hillary Clinton and for uh, Roy Cooper, or is it... Uh, well, the Republicans are making that claim that it, it's going to help um, Cooper and Clinton. I'm not all that clear on that, though, because one of the things that um, Republicans argued uh, in the district court was, well, look, um, African-American participation is up since we passed this law. So... You know, who knows what's going to happen? Right. Yeah. And the the court was pointing out that uh, um, they passed this just as uh, African American voting was way up in the 2008 Obama race, and and lesser extent in the 2012 uh, Obama reelection right. race. So they were using uh, increased rates of black voting as is basically to say, look at this. They they did this because um, they're trying to, whether it was for, for racist reasons or not, they're trying to disenfranchise uh, uh, black voters because they right. vote for, tend to vote for Democrats. Right. So. Um, well, um, uh, that was uh, the big news today, but uh, the week's been dominated by the Democratic uh, National Convention. Um, so, Colin, why don't you talk a little bit about what you saw in uh, Philadelphia? Was it... Uh, uh, did it seem like a, a united Democratic Party uh, there? We saw a lot of division uh, in the in, in Cleveland, but uh, what about in Philly? You know, I think it was about the same uh, level of divisions that we saw in, in both places. Um, Cleveland, it was uh, probably a small percentage of the uh, delegates that were there for Ted Cruz or uh, John Kasich specifically uh, were unwilling to, to get behind Trump as the nominee. A uh, similar situation played out in uh, Philadelphia with the Democrats, uh, that you had a, a small percentage of the Bernie Sanders delegates um, who are, aren't ready to support Clinton. And at one point, they even uh, staged a walkout from the uh, actual convention itself, came into the media tent, which happened to be where my workspace was located, um, and had a little sit-in and uh, some, some chanting and uh, trying to make the case that the, the election had been stolen and was rigged, sort of some of the 
claims we've heard from from Bernie supporters uh, throughout the the primary process. Um, so, in the, the end of the day, I, I mean, I think the majority of the parties uh, were unified, but there's there's still the the groups that that want to boo both candidates and and have not come close to committing to voting for for the party's nominee uh, come November. So there's there's a lot that both I think Trump and Clinton have to do to to get the the full faithful on board with them and uh, and behind them as they get close to November. You had some of the protests uh, come right into your uh, the the news media workspace, right? Yeah. So the um, this was sort of an interesting setup. So in in Cleveland, the media uh, wasn't super close to the arena, the Quicken Loans Arena, where the action was happening. We were actually in the the city's convention center and giant ex- exhibition hall where they had you know hundreds of, of reporters set up. So that was nice because it had you know solid air conditioning. Uh, in Philadelphia, the um, arena complex is out on the south side of town, um, sort of away from the rest of downtown. So they set up uh, large air-conditioned tents in a parking lot, uh, and that's where we were working. And, and during the middle of the day, uh, the air conditioner uh, there was not doing as much as I would have liked it to. But uh, that ended up being the, the location that the walkout went to, which uh, from a optic standpoint is extremely smart. Because if you were trying to get media attention and you know that there is a tent across the street with hundreds of reporters and cameras in it, that's probably where you want to be having a disruption because you'll you'll get good coverage. And of course, you know, every journalist goes running towards any sort of sounds of chaos. And so you saw, you know, just everyone making a beeline from their little desk in this this tent to where the the protesters had come in to uh, protest Bernie Sanders, and at one point the cops uh, shut it uh, shut the area off to anybody who uh, even media I think at one point um, couldn't get into the building, you could get out, but you couldn't get get into the the tent. Um, but in the end, it just sort of dissipated. The the police in, in both Philadelphia and Cleveland, I think, were very good about uh, handling protests. They have done a lot of training in how to sort of peaceably uh, deal with uh, touchy situations between protesters for different causes who are up in each other's faces and that sort of thing. And uh, we saw a lot fewer arrests and a lot fewer um, issues pop up than, than I think a lot of people expected going into both conventions. Um, and I think the uh, latest count I saw was there was maybe 100 sort of arrest in Philadelphia, but they, uh, it was interesting to me comparing it to some of the moral Monday sort of arrests we have here. Uh, they didn't actually take the people to jail and process them the way they would, uh, with some of the protests we have in North Carolina. Uh, they were sort of given, uh, I guess almost something similar to like a jaywalking ticket and sort of brought away from the, the scene and, and allowed to, to go free. So, uh, not a whole lot of action on the, the protesting front outside of these, this very vocal, but rather small group of, uh, Bernie Sanders folks in Philadelphia. You had a story that said that uh, House Bill 2 was a hot topic there. Uh, tell us about the gender-neutral restroom, but don't don't tell us too much, please. Yeah, so uh, when I got to um, Philadelphia, I started seeing on, on social media some post of a, a sign that said, all gender restroom, uh, and it was a place that was in the um, Wells Fargo Arena where they were having it. Uh, so I was curious, so I, I wandered around the building until I found the sign, and uh, like any good journalist, I, I properly uh, investigated, so I went in there to use the restroom and just sort of feel like what the experience was. Basically, it was set up like any other multi-stall women's restroom, and there weren't any urinals, thankfully, um, but everyone had a private stall, uh, but it was being used by men and women. When I was in there, um, there were a few men, a few women. Um, I, I noticed one woman with her young son, which I think for her that was probably very helpful to be able to take her son to the bathroom without one of them being in the, the wrong gender's bathrooms. Worth noting that the majority of the bathrooms in the Wells Fargo Arena were 
standard men's or women's restroom. It was sort of an option uh, that was available uh, sort of to show solidarity and inclusion of, of transgender folks. Um, and it was interesting to me. I, I'm curious, uh, and I don't think I've got a good full section of the transgender population, whether those people would prefer to have a bathroom like this or whether they would just as soon be able to go to a women's restroom if that's how they identify and not sort of have to go to different accommodations. One woman I talked to who's transgender in the North Carolina delegation uh, told me she was excited to see the all-gender bathroom. She went there once or twice, but ultimately she's used to going to the women's room and there was a more conveniently located women's bathroom to where she was sitting in the uh, Wells Fargo arena. So that was where she was going the majority of the time uh, rather than uh, trekking out of her way to, to use the all-gender bathroom. And weren't there, there were a couple members of the delegation that were transgender? There were right? two. Um, one is uh, from Johnson County. She was quoted in a couple of my stories, Wendy LMA, who's actually running for county commission down there as a Democrat, uh, which will be an interesting race to watch in, in November. Uh, she told me if she's elected, she'll be the first, uh, and I think this is probably true, uh, transgender office holder uh, in, in North Carolina. Uh, another woman from down in Charlotte, Janice Covington, uh, is also transgender. She was, uh, I think, in the uh, Charlotte Observer story that, w- that we had in the paper the last day or so, uh, actually had sort of a, a falling incident with uh, in one of the, the big crowds coming out of the convention center uh, and ended up having to be hospitalized and was sort of out of, out of action for the last couple of days of the convention. Well, uh, there are a few Tar Heels in the spotlight on the stage at the Democratic National Convention. So uh, who, who did we hear from from North Carolina? So there were five total uh, counted that were in the, the speaking arrangements from North Carolina. Uh, only one was an elected official, G.K. Butterfield, to give a, a short speech as the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, but we also heard from a lot of folks who aren't uh, necessarily politicians, uh, a husband and wife couple from Raleigh, Brooks Bell, and Jesse Lipson, uh, both of whom uh, started successful uh, tech companies here in Raleigh and spoke a little bit about that aspect of their story, but also uh, hit pretty hard against uh, HB2 and its effect on on the business climate in North Carolina. Um, Probably the most buzz out of the North Carolina speakers was for uh, Reverend William Barber of the NAACP. Uh, Barber got up there um, and, and gave to me, what was a sort of condensed version of your typical William Barber speech. It's very sort of biblically infused, uh, very fiery, passionate, um, focused on sort of the, the moral aspects of the, the political issues that, that he's been focused on, things like uh, voter ID and uh, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, HBCUs, that sort of thing. Um, so to me, it didn't really stand out because I've heard William Barber speak many times here in North Carolina. But for a national audience that's never heard William Barber, a lot of them were raving about him on social media, were really uh, impressed by his speech and, and probably got more attention to that speech than you would typically get for one of the you know three or four minute speaking slots, of which there were very, very many uh, between you know 4 p.m. and 10 p.m. when the, the national media cameras cut in for the, the big speeches of the night. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what kind of uh, bounce uh, Barber gets off of that. And uh, I think he already gets a lot of speaking engagements around the country, but I can imagine he'll be even more in demand now after this. Well, we, we talked last week about uh, uh, Donald Trump's speech and uh, kind of what you made of that. Uh, last night was the, the big acceptance speech by Hillary Clinton. Uh, any thoughts off of, uh, off of her speech? Yeah, I mean, she she gave a very policy-oriented speech and I think directly went after a lot of the folks that uh, in the constituencies that are Donald Trump supporters. She was mentioning coal country. Uh, she tried to refute the idea that Trump has put out there that she's opposed to the Second Amendment, um, really sort of made a strong appeal to that. And I think what was interesting was uh, some of the, the optics of this convention almost looked more like a Republican convention. Right before Hillary came on last night, uh, the people who normally pass out signs uh, for, for each speaker at the DNC passed 
cast out small American flags and some large American flags. So the the entire arena, as she took the stage, was just a sea of American flags. Uh, they made a point. She made a point to talk a lot about uh, military service members to bash Trump uh, for his criticism uh, of the quality of, of America's armed forces. Uh, so I think she did a solid job of that. Whether uh, she was convincing those people, I guess we'll see when the next rounds of round of polls. Um, come out. Um, I did think her speech got a little bit overshadowed by Barack Obama's the night before. Um, you know, Obama has always been a really, really good speaker, and that this was a particularly good speech from him on uh, Wednesday night. Uh, and in a sense, I think, uh, in part because his, his speaking style is, is the way it is, he may have made a better case for Hillary Clinton's president's, potential presidency uh, than uh, Clinton herself. Um, so that was that was interesting to see. Uh, and certainly, all the speeches this week were a little uh, less dark than the um, speeches we heard from the Republicans, and including Trump's uh, hour and a half speech in which he, he painted kind of a dark picture of the current state of crime and, and other issues in America. All right. Well, anything else uh, you want to add about to what was notable at the at the convention, or do we have any uh, anybody we're going to hear from? From the, from the convention? I don't uh, think so. The challenge, uh, the challenge of covering it, I, I'll have to say, is that uh, doing the interviews in the arena is is super hard. You can get just about every delegate because all you have to do is walk down there, and, of course, they're there for a six-hour period. But it's very loud in there. It's extremely crowded. The floor where uh, journalists are allowed to go uh, is packed with reporters. I got hit in the head with a TV camera a couple of times as I was trying to, to make my way through and, and conduct some interviews. Um and, and, and it's just the logistical issues of a convention are always uh, fun to deal with because there's the traffic, there's the fact that the the delegation is staying well outside the city center because of the shortage of hotels. And in Philadelphia, the Democrats were in a small town called Culpsville, Pennsylvania, that I uh, have never had a reason to visit and probably never will again. But uh, had a had a Holiday Inn that was not booked, and that's where they had their their morning breakfast that hardly anyone came to because uh, most of the, the folks that were supposed to speak to them got stuck in Philly's morning traffic which I can sympathize with because I had to get stuck in it a few times this week. Hey, Colin, where was the delegation seated? Because I swear there was one night every cutaway was to the North Carolina delegation. It was like, hey, there's, there's. So were you guys right in front? Yeah, well, they weren't fully on front. So the, the interesting thing was with the Republican convention, I think because there are fewer delegates at the Republican convention, everyone's on the same level. So the, the area of the arena that I guess is normally like the basketball court is all the delegates, and then everyone who's sort of in the risers uh, is a guest of some sort. The Democrats, I guess there were more of them, so there was the people who were directly on the floor, and they're all on the same level, but the first level of risers sort of more or less front and center was North Carolina. And I think okay. some of that was the fact that we were a swing state, so we had that positioning uh, but for the TV cameras, it's helpful because when everyone's not on the same level, you can zoom in on individual faces. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of uh, uh, good, um, uh, I guess, uh, fashion accessories, buttons and stuff that they could zoom in on. At one point yesterday, I think, when uh, the human rights campaign guy was speaking, uh, a couple of the LGBT folks in the North Carolina delegation unfurled this giant equals sign flag. And, of course, that got on TV. But you're right. Yeah. I, the, the couple times I was uh, not in the hall and, and watching it on TV – I saw a lot of people I recognized, and yeah. I think anybody watching at home who who knows the North Carolina Democrats saw a lot of them. Um, right. I was going to tweet all the people I saw, then I thought, well, this is just way too many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we'll be right back to talk about uh, some of the presidential visits uh, to the state and uh, and what the latest is in the governor's race. Uh, stay with us.
And we're back with more Domecast. Uh, Craig Jarvis, uh, there's, uh, what happened in the governor's race this week? Well, uh, I think the uh, the season is getting sillier. Uh, it just kind of feels that way. It started with, I guess, on the eve of the Democratic Convention, a WikiLeaks leak of DNC emails, which I think mostly uh, wasn't all that harmful. It, it looked bad for certain people. But uh, operatives around the country were digging into it to see what it might mean to them, including uh, operatives here in North Carolina. And the GOP uh, came up with uh, a couple of little gems. One was uh, an email from a communications person, a Hillary or a Democratic Party communications person here, saying this is what's going on in terms of the HB2 front. There's, you know, businesses are are, uh, talking about leaving, Pearl Jam is closing. Governor says he won't appeal uh, uh, or, or he won't go along with a repeal. Um, and so and so uh, the, the, whoever he was writing that to wrote a one-word response, which was awesome. Well, they took that to mean Pearl Jam's leaving awesome, which is part of this narrative that uh, Cooper and the whole rest of the Democrats want North Carolina to fail. Um, they found that another email that showed that Cooper went to Goldman Sachs for a fundraising trip. And, of course, they point out that uh, – Hillary Clinton got a lot of grief for taking a whole bunch of money from Goldman Sachs for speaking fees uh, before she became a candidate. But also uh, Cooper has kind of touted his own record as a tough-on-banks guy. So, you know, as if McCrory doesn't also get uh, out-of-state or outside money, which he does. But um, so those two, two little things were kind of were silly. Cooper, I mean, um, uh, McCrory told reporters a couple of days ago that this – the emails show that uh, Charlotte and North Carolina were simply pawns in Roy Cooper and the Democrats' game, uh, which was to raise money um, to use against uh, the governor. And there was kind of a lot of finger-pointing going on over who started this whole thing in the first place. Uh, Democrats weren't really free of silliness either. Uh, Scott Walker, Wisconsin governor, was here to do a fundraiser for McCrory and for the uh, Democratic uh, Republican Governors Association here in Raleigh. And... Um, um, a fundraiser had sent out an email that they got their hands on saying, uh, uh, you'll get a good return on your investment, you know, if you chip into this. Well, the Democrats jumped on that to say, well, just what do you get in return? This sounds like pay to play when, you know, there have been investigations of Mercury's administration. And so it's just kind of silly. This turns out the Democratic Governors Association used really similar phrasing last year in a fundraising letter. So uh, I think we've got a long, hot summer ahead of us. Yeah, well, I think especially with these uh, thousands of emails, I think we'll be hearing about some little things out of those for a while. We also uh, saw that they were talking, uh, the op- opponents of HB2 were talking about uh, how to capitalize it on it by bringing uh, Vice President Biden to, to Raleigh. And we don't really know, I guess, why that never materialized. No, um, I never but, heard any other talk of it. I think that was the first we had heard of it, and I just don't know what uh, – if it wasn't a good idea or just didn't work into the grand scheme of things. And outside of the emails, too, their WikiLeaks is still releasing more and more as the days progress. We saw a few voicemails come out, mostly from supporters of Clinton, basically saying, why are you getting into the pockets of Bernie Sanders and kind of making some wild accusations? It didn't really seem to reflect much on the DNC itself, but of the people calling into the DNC, which I found interesting because a lot of the email talk has been from the DNC perspective. So it was interesting how the voicemails revealed more from what the public thinks. Mm. It's another reminder that everything you email is subject to <laughs> showing up on some blog or some 
a WikiLeak somewhere down the road. Good thing for everybody to keep in mind. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> says the editor. <laughs> so, Brian, uh, you had uh, you had a one on one interview with Donald Trump this week. Uh, on Monday, he was here in Winston Salem. Uh, in addition to uh, a trip to, to Charlotte on Tuesday, the presidential candidates are basically camping out in North Carolina at this point uh, when they're not at the convention. Uh, Hillary Clinton was was also in, in Charlotte on Monday. But um, what did Donald Trump have to say in, in your interview? Well, he didn't really have much to say. Of course, it's an interview with Donald Trump. He's got a lot to say, obviously. <laughs> uh, and I, Reticent, I, as always, yes. <laughs> I think for me, uh, one thing that I wanted to try and achieve with the interview was to try and get as much policy focus as I could. And at times it felt like trying to pull teeth a little bit. And um, I think one of uh, the more powerful moments for me or kind of more revealing moments was when I just asked him about uh, his thoughts on a role for Burr and McCrory in his administration and his stance on House Bill 2, and you're going to hear that audio a little bit later. Uh, But really, I didn't get any answers back. They were pretty vague. Uh, With regard to Burr and McCrory and his administration, he said, and I'm quoting him here, certainly it'd be something I'd consider. We have plenty of applicants for plenty of jobs. Hard to get much more vague than that. And with regard to the NBA's HB2 decision, uh, really didn't have too much to say except that the state should stick to their principles even though they're losing a lot of money because of businesses going out but essentially uh, as far as policy goes for mr trump the the one thing that i everybody here is okay don't worry (laughs) the one thing that i think i i did take away from mr trump was um him talk, kind of reworking a few of his positions on the Muslim ban, basically saying now we're going to target specific territories, wouldn't state the specific territories, um, but rather than exclude a whole group of people, we're going to target specific countries. So it, seem, it seems he's getting a little bit more specific. Um, and with college debt, I asked him when he's going to be coming out with a plan, what his thoughts are, and he essentially said, we're going to have something hopefully within the next four weeks. So it seems that it's it's starting to get more policy focused a little bit, uh, but still quite a ways to go. And what was the rally like? Well, the rally itself was very interesting because we saw Governor McCrory speak, and you can check online. There was uh, kind of a controversial joke about House Bill 2 at the beginning of McCrory's speech, Um, We also saw Governor Pence and a lot of North Carolina leaders we haven't seen in the past starting to support Trump. So Trump kind of played off of that a little bit. uh, And and with that increased recent backing he's gotten from North Carolina leaders, it seems that he's being able to make a, a better pitch to the public. But what was surprising to me, just as far as the environment goes, I didn't spot any protests going before the event, during the event, there might have been one, maybe two people who got uh, removed from attendance. But other than that, it was a very tame rally, and I was surprised to see how small it was compared to some in the past. This one, maybe 4,000 people, I'd estimate, and that's being a little bit generous. So 
pretty tame to my surprise. Yeah, usually Trump uh, can can really uh, fill arenas. So uh, he also was, as I said, in Charlotte. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and Hillary, Hillary Clinton was in Charlotte, and the uh, the Charlotte Observer reported that they they got pretty different receptions. Uh, right. Sort of a polite. Uh, reception for Hillary Clinton, uh, and this was really, uh, I guess, Donald Trump's audience because they they greeted him with a lot of cheers, and in fact, um, some people shouted lock, uh, her, lock up. her up mm-hmm. uh, as they did at the convention. Um, so uh, I guess we can look forward to a uh, a fall of of both of these uh, folks uh, spending a whole lot of time in North Carolina. In fact, uh, we have uh, Tim Kaine coming next week, right? Uh, so. Uh, we and, and oh, it's Mike that Pence that's coming next week. Maybe I was uh, both it's of them. Pence, are, Pence is coming on Thursday. Pence will be in Raleigh on Thursday. There is, um, I think, as of yet, unconfirmed reports that Tim Kaine will be in somewhere in the state at some point next week. But we won't really know any details or confirmation on that just yet. And for correct me if I'm wrong, but from what we know, that's just vice president only. No president. Yeah, I think this is this is just the VP, which is I'm really interested to see how they perform what, on their own. Well, particularly Mike Pence, because exactly. uh, it, it's it's hard to share a stage with Donald Trump and Donald <laughs> Trump not completely overshadow you. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what Mike Pence is like on his own. Maybe we'll get an interview. I'd love to ask him about HB2 as someone who has dealt with some similar uh, business backlash on a, a social issue, LGBT sort of issue bill. And we did see him talk at the VFW speech over in Charlotte. I think he spoke for maybe about two or or three minutes, just kind of about a little bit of the military background of his family. Um, But Trump, like you you said, he really dominated that talking for 20 straight minutes. And he actually outlined uh, a 10 step plan for veterans reform, as he called it. So, again, trying to get more to the policy side. But like you said, still overshadowing pencil. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. All right. Well, we're going to listen to Donald Trump uh, talking to the News and Observer's Brian Anderson about uh, some of the uh, things Brian just talked about. And uh, after that, we'll be right back with your headliners of the week. As far as Burr and McCrory, they're both here with you today. Do you envision any role for either of them within your administration going down the line? Well, they've done very good jobs. They really are liked by the people of North Carolina. I like them personally, both of them very much so. And We'll see what happens. Certainly, uh, it would be something I'd consider. We have plenty of applicants for plenty of jobs. That's one thing you know about the president. There are a lot of people looking to do work, and uh, we need great people, and they are certainly great people. Gotcha. And I wanted to kind of focus on North Carolina issues. We heard, as you probably know, NBA All-Star Game decision to move it to Charlotte. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I like the states making that decision, so they'll work something out. I'm sure they're going to work something out. You don't like to lose a lot of your business, but at the same time, they have to stick to their principles, and I'm sure that they'll be able to work something where everybody's going to be satisfied. And they did roll back some of the provisions of House Bill 2, making it allowed to to sue at the state level. Do you think that's gone far enough, or do you think there's still room to Well, again, yeah, they're working on it. I like that at state level, and I think that they're going to work. You have a lot of good people in this state in terms of representatives, and they'll work something out. I think that'll be fine. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Headliner of the week. And Domecast is back with the headliner of the week segments. So uh, where should we start? Colin, do you want to uh, tell us your headliner of the week? 
Yeah, I'm going with a, a convention-related one because that's about all I'm aware of this week. I've been ignoring all other news because I've been so busy at the convention. Uh, I'm going with Tim Kaine's uh, lapel pin uh, that was in the news this week. Uh, probably would not have attracted a whole lot of notice during his speech, um, as a lot of politicians wear lapel pins, uh, except for the fact that the North Carolina Republican Party, uh, which was having a uh, live-tweeting uh, event uh, where they were essentially responding to the Democratic National Convention in real time through what they termed a Twitter war room, uh, tweeted out uh, that uh, they found uh, Kane's uh, lapel pin shameful uh, as they believed it to be a Honduran flag. Uh, he had mentioned some experiences he'd had in Honduras during the, the speech, and they seemed to feel like he was overly emphasizing a, a foreign country. Um, but the flag pin turned out not to be the Honduran flag. It actually looked, uh, I think, nothing like it, uh, but was actually a uh, service pin uh, for the Marine Corps, uh, recognizing a family member of Kane who is uh, currently serving in the military. Uh, so uh, that was immediately pounced on by a, a number of, of Democrats and other folks on social media who uh, uh, took a screenshot of it. I think it was eventually deleted, um, became a fairly big news story and sort of buzzed about topic. Uh, eventually, uh, Dallas Woodhouse, who uh, is the head of the Republican Party uh, organization, apologized uh, for the tweet and uh, sort of directed it directly at, at Tim Kaine. Uh, for that, said it was a mistake that they'll be making sure doesn't happen again. Uh, apparently involves a, a younger staffer. This Twitter war room, from what I could see of the photos on Twitter, uh, appeared to be a, a bunch of uh, younger GOP staffers uh, sitting around a table, some of them drinking beer, uh, which I don't know if that had anything to do with the uh, substance of their, the tweet that got them in, in a little bit of hot water. Um, but we'll see if they uh, have, a, I guess, a tighter lid on their uh, Twitter operation after that. So uh, Tim Gaines, lapel pin. All right. So Tim Kaine's lapel pin, um, the, uh, uh, that kind of story kind of blew up on social media, and, and uh, I, I guess they, people on social media like to share stories about people on failing social, media, social media, failing on social media, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Tim Kaine's lapel pin. Uh, Will, who's your headliner of the week? My headliner is Bernie Sanders, and it is not just a pity nomination uh, since he didn't get the real nomination. Um, although this is pretty good second place. If you can't get the presidential nomination, at least get a headliner of the week. But um, he, uh, you know, right. <laughs> but uh, Bernie, you know, his, his influence is still being seen. Obviously, we saw it in, you know, some of his impact in Hillary Clinton's speech. And then we also saw it with uh, Donald Trump here in Winston-Salem coming here and, you know, telling... Uh, telling the people of North Carolina that he is feeling the burn and that uh, if you liked Bernie Sanders' uh, stance on trade, you should vote for him instead of for Hillary Clinton. And um, actually did a uh, PolitiFact on that, and uh, we found it uh, mostly true uh, that when Donald Trump said that they are very similar on trade, they have some, they're both protectionist and they don't like free trade. They like, you know, tariffs, which are higher taxes on imported goods. Uh, there, uh, you know, some of the details differ, and you can go to politifact.com slash North Carolina and find out about those differences. Um, but yeah, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters might not like to hear it, but uh, they, they have a lot in common, and we might still be hearing his name as, uh, as both candidates continue to, to fight over North Carolina. All right. Bernie Sanders, who I think spent all four days at the, uh, at the convention, right? So, uh, um, you know, pretty, uh, pretty good for somebody who was having to uh, watch uh, his rival uh, get the nomination. Uh, Brian, who's your headliner of the week? 
my headliner of the week is going to have to be the experience of interviewing Donald Trump one-on-one. That's certainly a memorable one. You could go to newsobserver.com, click on the video tab, and, and see that full seven-and-a-half-minute interview Self-promotion. There. I like it, yeah. <laughs> Will got the PolitiFact in. Come on, Jordan. He's already rubbing off on you. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I think that the most interesting takeaway from that, in addition to what Will said, was they are very similar on trade, according to Mr. Trump and according to our PolitiFact as well. Uh, but it was also interesting to hear him talk about uh, college debt, party unity, Muslim bans, and trying to be a little bit more policy-focused. I guess once you're at the point where you were in the primaries, you can't get less policy-focused, I'd suppose. So I'd say the experience of interviewing Mr. Trump and trying to, to focus on policy for my headliner of the week. All right. So we have the, uh, uh, the flag pen. We have Bernie Sanders. We have uh, the Donald Trump uh, experience. And uh, uh, Lynn, who's your headliner of the week? My headliner is uh, William Barber, um, the second president of the state NAACP. Um, The NAACP was uh, the lead plaintiff in the voter ID lawsuit, which uh, the uh, appeals court struck down this week. And uh, Reverend Barber also appeared at the DNC, um, gave a fiery speech. He's been gradually expanding his... um, his uh, national appeal since he's been anchoring um, uh, Moral Mondays for the past two years here, but this gave him a national televised audience, and uh, people on Twitter seem to really like him. So uh, I'll go with um, I'll go with uh, Reverend Barber. All right, we've got the uh, we've got the flag pen, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, and Reverend Barber. Uh, Craig, who's your headliner of the week? My headliner is uh, Agricultural Commissioner Steve Troxler, and uh, he is actually a head- headline yet to come, but because uh, I'm still writing the story, but uh, it was hard to find other <laughs> options, <laughs> frankly, in this uh, this tough competition this week. I'm, I'm, I'm nominating uh, Troxer because I follow the governor over at the fairgrounds this week where he had a bill signing ceremony for the Farm Act, which is beneficial to agricultural interests. And it just occurred to me that uh, Troxler and the governor have a very good partnership. They're both, both uh, Republicans, and Troxler doesn't miss a chance to say what a friend to agriculture the governor is. And, uh, uh, of course, a bill signing thing is, is, is kind of a publicity, a feel-good thing for the governor as well as for whatever the cause is. And so um, this was just a cozy little relationship that uh, has developed. All right. So we've got Steve Troxler. We've got uh, Reverend William Barber. We've got uh, the flag, Tim Kaine's lapel pin. We've got Bernie Sanders. And we've got uh, the Donald Trump experience. Uh, Well, I I hate to break this to Bernie, uh, but uh, I'm not going to pick him i'm gonna pick uh it's been a rough week he's used to it yeah, yeah. <laughs> is he at least second place jordan second place <laughs> there there is no there's we're they're all second place uh in in headliner of the week uh but i do have to go with reverend barber uh he had a very good uh not only very good week but a very good 24 hours uh where he uh, got this uh, sudden national attention uh and then also uh, a favorable ruling uh today uh in in court uh, in a, a very big uh, very big ruling uh so uh Reverend William Barber is our headliner of the week 
And that's it for Domecast. Uh, for Colin Campbell, Will Doran, Brian Anderson, Lynn Bonner, and Craig Jarvis, I'm Jordan Schrader. And uh, thanks for listening. Catch us next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.